Would you please open with me to the Gospel of John? We'll be in chapter 12, starting in verse 9, in just a minute. As you make your way to John 9, I'm sorry, John 12, verse 9, you may remember that I mentioned that from chapter 10, verse 55, through the end of chapter 19 is basically the last week of Jesus' life. And actually, chapter 13 through chapter, the end of 17, is the upper room. So John just kind of condenses the most important parts here <clears throat> in his perspective from his writing. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> is recording various signs throughout the book of John and the miracles that Jesus performed so that, as he says in chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have eternal life. And so here we are 2,000 years later. <clears throat> as we make our way through John's gospel, it is without a doubt that as we have made our way through the book of John, that the Lord would seek that we would come to a true faith in Jesus Christ, and that we who believe would know with certainty our Savior based upon what he did and what he said, who he is, that we can rest our whole entire being, our future upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so John has just recorded for us the seventh of seven miracles he records in the book of John. The seventh being the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. In chapter 11, it seems that in John's mind, this is the miracle, the final miracle that he records. He says there in chapter 21 that, listen, he's like, I can't record everything. He says, if I were to record everything that Jesus did, he couldn't fit it in all the books of the world. But he says, here's seven of them, so I appreciate that about John. But he says, the seventh one, I think you can just tell by the context, it is culminating into this seventh miracle where Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead just outside of Jerusalem. And it's this miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, that really stirs up everyone in the country. I mean, this is what drives Jesus to the cross and God's sovereign plan and man's wicked scheme. But as we read last week in the first verse of John chapter 12, the Passover is now at hand. Jesus had spent some time in Jerusalem in, in December, and now it's April-ish. And uh, December, he had... Uh, some between, sometime between December and April, he had resurrected Lazarus from the dead, and then because the Jews uh, sought to kill him, he kind of went out on the other side of the Jordan, and he's come back into Jerusalem. And so Jesus has returned to Bethany, the hometown of, of Lazarus and Mar Martha and Mary, his sisters, and, uh, and they are throwing a dinner in his honor. They threw a dinner in his honor, most likely at the home of Simon the leper. So you're kind of piecing together all the gospels there, or I am. But keep in mind that Bethany is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's right by the hornet's nest. And so as the word about Lazarus is spreading, uh, that Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, people are absolutely in a frenzy. They want to go see this. Wouldn't you want to go see that? And so, and picking up this morning in verse 9, <clears throat> it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is at Bethany, they came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans, of course, to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
John wants to get us, give us the sense of what is happening, of what's going on, the turmoil, all the people, all the crowds, the political opposition, everything that's going on, and then contrasting that, what is in, what, what is in Jesus' mind, the direction he's going. And so large cloud, crowds are flocking away outside of Jerusalem to go across the Kidron Valley and up the hill over to Bethany and to go see Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. They're like, yeah, Jesus, but we want to see also this Lazarus guy. And so the chief priest, his name is Caiaphas, we learned that from the chapter before, he hears about it and makes plans not only to kill Jesus, which he did before, but also Lazarus now. And again, the leaders were concerned that because of all the signs and wonders, because everything that Jesus was doing, Jesus would gather such a large group of people who would believe that he would be their political Messiah, <clears throat> that he would take uh, the nation into a scary place in that the Romans would see that as a threat, would come in and absolutely crush everybody. That's how the leaders saw it. They saw Jesus as a, flat, uh, as a threat, not only personally, but to the nation. Quite the opposite was true. And so they plotted to kill Jesus. And now Jesus is raised just to, you know, up the bar here. He not only heals people, has power over demons, he raises people from the dead. I mean, that's a pretty powerful figure, wouldn't you think? And so now they're going to go kill Lazarus. That's, that's what they want. Now, what John does not tell us is that the political leadership in the country, which like our nation was divided into two major groups. You had the, uh, <clears throat> and, and they don't equate in any way, but they're to our political thing, but there are two major groups. You had the Pharisees who were the legalists of the day. They were the ones who interpreted the scriptures, kind of held to a strict interpretation of the law, actually to the point where they over-interpreted it. And they um, made it to where they would create these laws that God never intended as if they were the, doc uh, the doctrines of men as if they were God's doctrine. That's kind of what they did. And so they were the ones who wanted to kill Jesus for different reasons, because he, 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 uh, he was healing on the Sabbath and because, he, uh, and because he claimed to be the Son of God. So they just wanted to kill Jesus for all those reasons. Uh, more legalistic reasons. But the other group were the Sadducees. <clears throat> the Sadducees held the power at this time in history of the priesthood. Uh, they held the priesthood. They were the priests within the temple, managing all the, the courts and the money changing and all that kind of stuff. And one thing about the, uh, the, the Sadducees at this time is that Caiaphas, the chief priest, he was a Sadducee. And we know that from Matthew twenty two twenty three that the Sadducees denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in angels and miracles and all this type of stuff. And so Jesus was not only a political threat, he was a doctrinal threat. He was a religious threat to them. And here, Lazarus, being raised from the dead, is not good for them, you know, they're like, uh, you know, hey, you guys are leaving us. We're the center of power. We're having a feast. Everybody's supposed to come to see us. We're supposed to do all this type of thing. They're leaving to go across the hill to go see exactly what they don't want them to go see. And so they plot to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus. And so you have both the political parties joining together, and you know when that happens, usually something is wrong, uh, to kill Jesus. Verse 12, in the next day, that is the day after the feast at Bethany. 
the large crowd that had come to the feast and kind of to see Jesus, and they stayed overnight, right? <clears throat> that had come to the feast, sorry, no, that's not them. The large crowd that's in Jerusalem, they heard Jesus was coming uh, to Jerusalem, and so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so these masses of people who are gathered in Jerusalem, they hear that Jesus is coming. They know he's coming down the hill. They're, they're, there's people talking everywhere. You understand, like one million people converged upon the city. A lot of people are out there finding out what Jesus did. And a huge group, large groups, go out and meet Jesus along the path, and they take palm branches, and they put them in his path, and they start singing to him and crying out, Hosanna, and they call him their king as he makes his way into the capital. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a... Um, the, uh, basically, the Antiochus, was his name Antiochus Epiphanes? Uh, basically, he was a Syrian king. He came through and, and, and took over Jerusalem, basically. And any of you who have read uh, the book of Maccabees, you, you see the revolt that the Jews had against the Syrian occupation of Jerusalem. Eventually, eventually they recaptured uh, the city through this revolt. And, the, and when they did, uh, I think Simon Maccabeus. As he entered Jerusalem after recapturing it from the Syrian, the people started waving palm branches at him and were crying out praises in his name. And so that's a little, his, the historians record this. And so what the palm branch had become was a symbol of victory, a symbol of celebration. And so as we kind of connect the dots there, these massive cr crowds are crying out, Hosanna, save us. Save us. That's what Hosanna means, is, is save. So the people of Israel have been watching a miracle worker in their midst. They've been watching how he has power over sickness, over demons, and now has the power over death, which is astounding. And they've been waiting for their Messiah. And in their minds, they are looking for someone who would save them. Someone who would deliver them, save them like Moses did out of Egypt. That is what they are looking for. And what we can see plainly, there's a great anticipation within these crowds and even the disciples that Jesus is going to come and save them from the Romans. That's what they're looking for. And that is what Hosanna means. It means save, but it wasn't a spiritual cry. It was a political cry. It's amazing how just like these people, we can take scriptures and apply them to whatever we want for our own means and our own views and our own desires. It's the, actually, it's the history of our nation in many ways. You remember, this, we have fought a civil war over a disagreement about interpretation of scripture, not that wasn't the, the main thought, but two views of slavery there. One that sought the script, saw the scriptures as justifying it, another one said, no, that's not it. 
But it's amazing how we can, we can do that. We can read. We can be in such a circumstance and be in pain or hurting or figure out what's, you know, having struggles in our life. And we go, look at, here's a verse that fits. God, that's true about you. Now make it so. Anyone ever had that deal? I have a Bible with uh, verses underlined where God was supposed to do stuff. He decided not to for some reason. But it's amazing how just like these people, we can do that. The crowds are quoting Psalm 118, 25 through 26, which was a cry for the Lord to come and save them and grant them success. And in their minds, they're looking forward to the Christ who would come and free them from their oppressor. And so as they're crying out Hosanna and they're quoting scripture and laying down palm branches there, they call him also the king of Israel. They're not only saying, hey, victory and, and uh, you know, come deliver us, come save us. They're saying, you are our king. You are our king. You are the king of Israel. And here's the thing, that before the week is through, that very phrase will be above his head as he hangs on the cross, the king of the Jews. The masses of people will turn when they find out that the Jesus that they thought would come and save them wasn't there to do what they wanted to do, and they would turn on him. Most would. And so here they want to make this man who performs miracles their king. And what they're looking for is that savior. But he came to save them from their sin. That's why he came. If you remember in the past when they desired to make him king, remember it was after he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? They wanted to take him by force and make him king. Jesus recognized that about him, so he, but he kind of hid himself from their midst. And then he goes on, he leaves with the disciples, goes to the other side of the river, goes to the other side of the river, other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they go and find him. They, go, they seek him out and they find him. And Jesus says, you're following me because I gave you bread. And then he tells them, the bread that you need, and this is paraphrasing, is not physical bread. You're going you're gonna to hunger again. He says, what you need is to eat the flesh of the Son of Man. And, and I'm paraphrasing all through this. I'm kind of condensing the whole story. You need to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. If you don't, you don't have life in you. And obviously, if you are looking for bread and Jesus tells you that, you're not very happy. And so, many of them decide to try to kill Him, and you progress along. John 6, 66, His disciples even left Him, not the twelve, but most of them. That's what they wanted, but Jesus was not here to give them what they wanted. And so, he was not going to be their political savior. He was not going to deliver them from the Romans, but, a far more, but from a far more sinister enemy, from sin, from death, from the power of Satan, and to give them eternal life. This is why many people come to Jesus. It's because they want him to do some great work in their life on their terms. Some of you might have the same thing. 
God, you need to do this and this and this. You need to heal my marriage. You need to heal my diseases. You need to do this, this, this. And the Lord's like, not that God doesn't care about those things, but that is not, he's not, listen, Christianity is an unconditional surrender on your part to his lordship. And make no mistake, he is good. He is gracious. He heals. And he does all the things he said he's going to do. But he is not our final graph, Jesus, as I like to say. But that's not what they wanted. What do you want? Why have you come to Jesus? This is a big struggle I had. You know, I've been hurt in a lot of years, and then I thought God is supposed to do all these things. It was not what they were expecting, and Jesus knew it as he made his way into the capital. So you have all these crowds crying out, doing verses, singing praises, laying down palm branches, quoting the verses. And there's this huge contrast. Because as they're singing, Luke's gospel tells us what Jesus is, is, is thinking. You flip over to Luke chapter 9, or it's up there probably 941 through 44 maybe. <clears throat> awesome. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, who had known this day the things that make for peace. So I wish you, you'd know what I was doing and what I was about and why I'm here. I'm here to bring you peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and all your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They're all singing the songs. They're all putting the palm branches down. They're quoting the verses, but they missed it. Do you see? And Jesus was weeping because their faith was misplaced. They were blind. And the Romans would come in 70 AD and decimate the whole place. It's horrible, historical thing, what happened. And so his time had come, but not for the reasons they thought. The king of the Jews heads towards Jerusalem, verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, and his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and had been done to him. So there were prophecies being fulfilled right in front of the disciples' eyes. You've got to keep in mind, the disciples were totally caught up in, in hey, he's going to establish this kingdom now thing. I mean, he's caught up. It's by God's grace that they're, they're saved, right? Just like any of us. But these, this, these prophecies that were written well beforehand, hundreds of years, several hundred years in some cases, uh, like Zechariah 9.9 about the Messiah, the king coming into Jerusalem on a colt, <clears throat> on a donkey, but they didn't get it. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't understand the, what was going on, even prophecies of Daniel to the very day that Jesus would come in. He says, hey, Daniel's like, hey, there's going to be this many days until the Messiah is going to come riding into Jerusalem, J Daniel chapter 9. 
And then he's going to be cut off. And then there's going to be another time of period before he returns. And so down to the day and they didn't get it. And John says that they didn't get it until after Jesus was glorified. What is interesting is that even after Jesus died and rose again, and he's still ministering to his disciples before his ascension, <clears throat> they, say, they ask him there in, John, in, in Acts 1.6, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Is it going to be now? It's like, are we there yet? That's what's going on over and over and over. They keep asking, hey, now, 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 am I the greatest? Can I sit with you? They just keep this is what they're focused on. And, and here he says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then verse 8, but you, you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. That's my plan for you. You're going to be my witnesses when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until after Jesus ascended, until Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit did fall. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's glorified. He sends the Holy Spirit, and the church is born. And then they were given understanding. Later in John 14, 25, Jesus speaks of that day to the disciples. It hadn't happened yet. But in John 14, 25, he tells them, uh, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It all came together when Jesus was glorified and he sent the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit taught them to remember. If you remember, even after his resurrection, just the day of his resurrection, he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those guys and they didn't get the whole story. And Jesus goes, hey, have you not read the Old Testament? And then he opened their minds to the scriptures. And beginning from the law and the prophets and from Genesis all the way through, he showed them probably all the little pictures and vignettes of how it all pointed to him. It opened, he opened up their minds, but they hadn't received that at this time. So the disciples didn't understand anything that was going on, but they would later. Jesus said the Messiah came into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as the scriptures had foretold. And that is very fitting because a donkey was a symbol of peace. I wish you had known that I had come to give you peace, but you missed it. A king on a donkey <clears throat> was a symbol of peace. But a king on a horse, that's a different matter. And Revelation 19 says that Jesus is coming back on a, he's coming back on a war horse. And he will come and he will touch down and he will rule with a rod of iron and the government will be upon his shoulders. And of his kingdom there will be no end, amen? But this time, he's come to save. He's still on the donkey, folks. Praise the Lord. He's coming to offer peace. Don't neglect the time. Don't Harden your hearts to the Lord. Don't harden your hearts in sharing that message to those who are around you that God has called you to give the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to that you've received. Amen? Amen. Because next time when he comes, it's not going to be good. For those who don't repent, but the crowds are welcoming him into Jerusalem as their political Messiah, verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had done, and, and, and so done, he had done the sign. So there's, notice how John's saying the word crowd a lot. That's the idea. There's a lot of crowds. And what are these crowds? You have the crowds in Jerusalem. You have the crowd that was at the feast that kind of merged with the crowd coming up from Jerusalem. And all these people are singing Hosanna as he's coming down the hill into Jerusalem. But then there's the other crowd, the crowd back when, who, is, who were there when Jesus resurrected Lazarus. There was those Jews that were there that were mourning. Remember that? And when they saw that, it says some believed, and then the other ones went and told the Pharisees. Remember that? Well, that group, we don't know which one, but those group of people who witnessed that, they're out telling everybody this is a real deal. And you've got millions of people, and so the crowds are stirring. And they're all coming, not because they believe, but because they want to see what Jesus did, because of the sign, verse 19. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're getting mad at each other. They're like, hey, this is not the way it's supposed to go. Jesus isn't supposed to be gaining followers. He's, we're supposed to have this guy arrested, and we're supposed to kill him. It's going the other way. They're getting mad at each other. They're like, now look, the whole world's following after him. And John uses that to make his point of verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So not only the Jews were hearing about Jesus, who else was hearing about Jesus? The Greeks, the Gentiles. These would have been people who had converted to Judaism, who left paganism, who started to follow the Lord. They wanted to see Jesus. In verse 22, and so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it might be because Philip was just available and Jesus was unaccessible, they came to him and they knew he's one of his disciples. Or it could be that the reason that John is mentioning this is where he's from is because possibly people from that place spoke Greek. So maybe there's kind of connection. It doesn't say, but he came to Philip, and Philip, verse 22, went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So they go, okay, what do we do about this? And they said, well, let's go talk to Jesus. And verse 23, and Jesus answered them, as he usually does, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will <clears throat> there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm going to pause and kind of break that down real quickly for you. So you have a group of Gentiles, basically Greeks, who converts, and they just kind of say, hey, we want to see Jesus, and this is Jesus' answer. What is Jesus telling them? Anytime I don't understand what Jesus says, I just got to go, what are you saying? Like, that's a good question. Like, don't pretend like you know it. Like, what is he saying? I was looking at this. What, what is his mind on? What is he thinking? What is he trying to communicate? They walk up and say, hey, we want to see you. And Jesus just busts into this other thing, this other, how do they connect? What's going on? They want to see Jesus, but Jesus says in a way, you want to see me, you want to follow me, this is where I'm headed. 
This is what's on my mind. He says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, what, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it what? It bears much fruit. This is in total contrast to all the crowds and their chants and their expectations of him. Jesus says, this is my moment to be glorified. This is my moment to be glorified, and you would expect that this means I'm going to rise up and take my rightful seat on the throne of men and rule and clean up the situation. But is that what Jesus meant? No. He says how that glorification would come about. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and what? And dies. It remains alone. But if it goes into the ground, what happens? Something sprouts up out of it in its likeness, in its very nature. It bears much fruit. So instead of ascending to the throne, he descended to the grave. That's where he's saying, you want to follow me, you want to see me, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. And this is how I'll be glorified. Through death. By fulfilling the Father's will. That's the opposite message of what we get. Esteem yourself, assert yourself, rise to the top overcome, do all these things. As we sing today, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of His testimony. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Hebrews said that He first descended and then He ascended. This is where Jesus is going. That's how He's glorified, to die that others might live. He went into the ground so that you would have his life. Amen? For you. He said, I'll be alone if I... It's not like Jesus was worrying about being alone. But he's just saying the principle is, I'm going to go down, and when I come up, there's going to be more of me. Not God's. But I'm, I'm going to bring people. A harvest is going to come with me. Christians, those who believe, those who are born again. Amen? That you would have his eternal life. These Greeks wanted to see him, and Jesus tells them, verse 25, what they must do to find him. They must follow him. Verse 25, whoever what? Loses his life. That's what he says. Whoever loves his life has to do what? Lose it. If you truly love your life and that you want to keep it together, Jesus says you have to lose it. You have to do what he did in the manner in which he did it. Not kill yourself, but lose yourself. Then he said it another way, and whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. You have to hate your own life enough to give it to God. You have to despise your own will enough. You have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If you do not surrender all, if you do not sign away your soul to the lordship of Jesus Christ and trust in him fully, you will lose your life. That's what Jesus is saying. If you love it, you're going to lose it. If you hold on to it, you're going to lose it. (laughs) You've got to give it away. To whom? To him. Extreme language, speaking of eternal life, that complete surrender. Jesus is saying, you want to see me? You want to follow me? I'm losing my life, and you must do the same in the sense that he was abandoned to the Father's will. Amen? He goes on and responded to them in verse 26, if anyone serves me, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? He must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Do you hear that? Do you want to serve Jesus Christ? Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? Are you really a servant of Jesus Christ? What does he say about that? See, the, the, the slave doesn't get to do the terms. The master does. I know we don't like that language, but that's the language he's using on purpose, Right? So that we know what he requires of us. He says, you want to follow me. It's your condition. You can willfully follow me. If you want to follow me, this is how it will be. And what does he say? Where I am, you're going to be with me. If anyone serves me, if you do follow me, the Father will honor you. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. And where is Jesus headed? He's not ascending. He is descending. His mind is on the Father's will and he knows what's coming. The cross, verse 27, and now my soul is what? It's troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Wow. Knowing where he's headed, the crowds are going in one direction, he's going in another. And he says, what shall I say? I'm going to back away from this moment. This is why I've come to this moment. I've come to die. Glorify your name, Father. So powerful. This is what it is to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Jesus was consumed with the glory of the Father. Are you consumed with the glory of the Father? Even to the point of death, denial of self. And Jesus says to these Gentiles who desire to follow him, you've got to be the same. You must lose your life. There is no crossless Christianity, church. There are those who are trying to tell you that Jesus is all about delivering you from every circumstance you find yourself in. If he wants to, you don't want to write that one out because that's what I'm longing for, right? (laughs) But that's not true. No, Jesus is about glorifying the Father in every circumstance you find yourself in. Where do you find yourself in today? Jesus says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. He knows what's coming. And what shall I say? Lord, take me away from this. 
Father, glorify your name. Church, we need to learn to pray like this a little bit more often. Father, glorify your name. Where are you today? What are you going through? Father, glorify your name in this. Thy will be done in this difficult circumstance. Too often we're crying, get me out. Which is a, a valid thing. Lord, deliver us from our enemies, right? We know that. But I mean, Lord, wh- where do you find yourself today? Glorify me in this relationship. Lord, glorify me. At, uh, glorify you at this uh, in work today, right? Lord, in my depression, Lord, glorify yourself. How do you find glory in this? Lord, come into this. Give me insight. What would you do? What would your will be in this? Who would I minister to? How would I talk? How would this produce glory to you, Father, the good works, the fruit from abiding in you. Lord, give me your word. Give me wisdom. Let me live it out. Jesus knew what his Father's will was. It would be wise for us to seek that. Amen? And Jesus said in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. (laughs) You got to love that. It was a thundering voice. He glorified it at his baptism. He glorified it as transfiguration. He's going to glorify it at his death. And the crowds, verse 29, that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. And so Jesus' mind is on glorifying the Father in his death. And the Father speaks from heaven. And people interpret it as thundering and Imagine that. Just kind of like basically when I was talking, now this is bad, in how the, the things would, <laughs> right? So Jesus is just like, he says, Father, glorify, you know, glorify thy name. And then all of a sudden this giant rumble shakes the place. And people are going, what's just went on here? But it wasn't like a Pastor Matt situation. I mean, it was the son of God, right? We got to clarify that. This wasn't a technical difficulty. It was exactly what needed to happen. And Jesus answers them and says, listen, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Very gracious of God. He wasn't needing public affirmation from God. He knew his father. It was for their sakes that they would know and believe, right? Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knew that he would be crucified. And the very means that the enemy would use to try to defeat Jesus would be the very linchpin that would cause the judgment of the world and the casting out of Satan. Satan thought he got Jesus when he killed him. No, he didn't. He sealed his own fate. As the first Adam forfeited the world through sin, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was sinless and redeemed the world. So the crowd answered him, verse 34, kind of, we're going to book through this. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Jesus said, I'm going to die through crucifixion. Did you know that 700 years before Jesus Christ was crucified, before crucifixion was invented, the scriptures spoke about crucifixion, how the Messiah would die? Prophecies. Jesus knew how he was going to die. 
How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And by the way, who is the Son, who is the son of Man? Not who is the Son of Man, like who is the Son of Man. It's, he's saying, like, what type of Son of Man are you? Because they expected, like, Ezekiel 37, 25, where it says that the final David, referring to the Christ, he would be Israel's princes forever. They aren't expecting the Messiah to die. That's not going to happen in their deal. You see, they thought the Messiah would be that one who would take over and establish the kingdom forever. Jesus, what are you talking about? Verse 35, and so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Notice he doesn't answer the question. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I'm going to be here for the rest of the week, and then I'm gone. You're walking in darkness. Believe while you can. So you can become sons of light. Notice, of his nature, of who he is. That's being born again. Verse 36b, and when he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Why is this? Though, they had done so, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not what? Believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what is heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. This is powerful stuff, but John quotes a few verses from the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ, knowing that Israel would reject their Messiah. We're on the home stretch here. Secondly, God, uh, Isaiah knows that God would harden their hearts so they could not believe. Unbelief begets unbelief. And here's a picture from the Old Testament. It's very interesting. You have Pharaoh. When God sent Moses to go deliver the people, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards Moses. And that happened several times. It's, it's important. It's repeated over and over and over and over that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when God hardens your heart, guess what? There's no coming back. These people had all the signs, they had all the things, and they would not believe God hardened their hearts. Jesus spoke to them in parables, so they would not believe. But to you, he said in Matthew 13 to the disciples, to you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Do not harden your hearts as you did in rebellion, Hebrews says. Right? Don't harden your hearts, church. Keep them soft towards the Lord. Hear his voice. Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Isaiah saw that rejection. And then I just want to read through the end here. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. Neat. Some of the religious leaders believed him like Nicodemus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not put out of the, not be put out of the synagogues. Uh-oh, what happens here to their belief? For they love the glory that comes from a man more than the glory that comes from God. Yikes. They loved their lives and would not lose them. True believers versus false believers. Verse 36. 
verse 44 through 50. And as Jesus cried, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. These are things he's repeated in John. If you believe in me, you believe in the Father, right? I am one with the Father. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. You want to see who the God is? You look at Jesus Christ. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Oh, yay, then I can do what I want. No, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Whatever Jesus says is what God says. Whatever Jesus does is what God does, because they are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. That's what he came to give, eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The promise of eternal life for those who believe. May the Lord give you discernment. May you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the church. May you follow Him this week. And may your lives be as fruitful as His. Amen? And I pray that as you have questions, that you would, you would seek out the answers, not from the internet, but from your brothers and sisters from those who are in the body, amen, who care for you and are invested. And may you grow in your calling because Jesus didn't just die to save you. He, he died to make you like him, to the glory of the Father, that you would be mature in him, grow in him, interacting with the body, not a lone ranger. You would be connected and that love would be demonstrated in the, your brothers and sisters around you in your various giftings and your various callings and the way God has created you in his body for his glory, amen? And we, working together in our various ways, represent Christ to the world and bring glory to the Father. Lord, thank you so much for the 12th chapter of John. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't miss it. Lord, I... I, I we are burdened down with so many things, Lord, political and um, pressures and all these types of things and pains in our lives and finances. and It just goes on and on, Lord, and we want you to be the Savior of them all, and no doubt you are above it all. But God, I just pray that through all of this, that we wouldn't put those things above your desire to be Lord of our life in all circumstances that even through difficulties, even through political turmoil, through difficulties in relationships and jobs and finances and health, you would show yourself strong and be glorified. Bless this body this week. We do come to you with all of our aches and pains and you are a good, good father. And we also recognize that you are Lord. And so whatever your will, may it be accomplished. Our King, Jesus. Hmm. It's in your name we pray, amen.